Welcome to the Waste Not What Not podcast. I'm Philippa Ross, human ecologist, enthusiologist, author and energy healer, bringing you inspirational interviews, news and tips to rebuild the relationship between people and the planet the way nature intended by revitalising our natural resources, minimising waste and maximising human potential. I trust you discover seeds of hope for a vibrant future so you can cultivate and transform them to suit your own lifestyle in order for us to collectively create a world where reverence for the diversity of all life is honoured. You'll find all the show notes in the description and lots more about me and my work at philipparos.com. And don't forget, if you like what you hear, be sure to share far and wide. Hello, Wastebusters. Welcome to episode 27. It's fitting that today's theme is about taking time out to reflect on the conventional things we do and think about the direction we want our life to take because Tuesday the 21st of June is the solstice which actually means stand still. For me it's move day so there won't be much standing still but it does present a whopping opportunity to channel my energy into creating a whole new lifestyle which is both exciting and scary but then I love a challenge. It's certainly testing my resolve so far as security of what the future holds because I have no idea what I'll be doing. It's one of life's big lessons to let go and trust. It feels right in my heart and I'll be nearer my grandbabies so regular hugs, love and giggles will keep me going. Like everything, I'll take time to find a new rhythm. The important thing is to enjoy the journey as it unfolds. Just like my guest today, Nick Turner, did when her world did a 180-degree turn. She transitioned from a well-paid role in the corporate world, encouraging people to buy more, to a solopreneur who now encourages people to buy less. The more awareness and the deeper we look into things, the more there is to discover, like the icebergs and ice shelves in Antarctica. Scientists have recently discovered a network of rivers under the Ross Ice Shelf, From the surface, it was hard to imagine they even existed, but satellite images confirmed it, so they used a hot water hose to melt their way down 500 metres, where a cathedral-like cavern that was 10 kilometres long, 300 metres wide and 250 metres deep was discovered. Remarkable in and of itself, but they were even more surprised when they detected swarms of amphipods about 5 millimetres in size opening up a whole new ecosystem to explore. It's a discovery that reiterates how little we know about the miracles of nature beyond our ability to see with the naked eye. As a previous guest Richard Robbins said, conservation is a fine balancing act between human intervention and stepping back to allow nature to take her course. In our quest to conserve the environment, we have to remember we are all part of an interrelated web of life and that we do not have dominion over other species. They are part of our extended family, something indigenous cultures know and the industrious cultures have forgotten. New research published in the Science Journal says if we're serious about wildlife conservation, we need to set aside 64 million square metres of earthland area, which equates to 44% of land, a whopping 27% more than the Rio Earth Summit agreed on in 1992, when 150 heads of government signed the Convention for Biological Diversity. This brings up problems so far as population is concerned, but also about the ocean. As we heard a couple of weeks ago from Glenn Edney, water is the source of all life. 
It's all very well having all these separate conservation organisations, but we need to work collectively and stop separating land and sea. It's one magical universe that we do well to stop exploiting and get serious about conserving as a whole system. Talking of the ocean, you may remember me telling you about a recent victory to stop far-shore sand mining on the Pākari and Mangawai embayment. They still have two hurdles to overcome for the remaining mid- and near-shore consents. The Save Our Sands community have created an ingenious event to be held at 10 o'clock in the morning on July the 10th at Mungafai Beach, inviting people to dress up in a costume that represents what's at stake. Then they'll be sending up a drone to capture everyone in an SOS formation standing on the beach. There's nothing like a visual image to capture the essence of what's important and show how much support the movement has. While we're on the beach and talking about the health of our ocean, new research has come to light in the US that shows there could be a link between levels of melanoma and the amount of fish people are eating. Not surprising when we already know how plastic pollution has shown up in human blood and lungs. Now synthetic pollutants found in PCBs have filtered through the air to the sea, affecting the fish, which ultimately has come back to bite us in the bum. This combination of how humans are destroying the planet and people taking a stand against the destruction of our natural world is for me evidence of the emergence of the geological era that Thomas Berry referred to as the Ecozoic Era in his book The Universe Story back in 1980. We're slowly making the shift away from exploitation of our resources and moving towards a time when humans live in mutual enhancing relationship with the Earth and the Earth's community. It's the eye of the storm, the chaos that comes to the surface to help us take stock of how our behaviour is affecting our world. It's time to stand still and reflect on what we can do as individuals to make the changes to harmonise people and the planet. Something my guest Nick Turner has mastered the art of doing when she shifted from encouraging consumerism to living a sustainable lifestyle that's easy, feels normal and gives you a heartfelt sensation that you're making an invaluable contribution. Hello Nicola, lovely to have you with me. It's absolutely fascinating that in the episode with Glenn Edney about the ocean and being ocean weak, he was talking about the big change that needs to happen is behaviour. And delicious synchronicity, I'm talking to you because that is your mainstay. And having been in the corporate world, you were involved in fast moving consumer goods, whatever that means. And it's moved you into creating your own business, Mainstream Green. Could you tell the listeners exactly what led you into your corporate job, what it meant and how it evolved into your business? Absolutely. Cool. Thanks for having me, Philippa. So FMCG, just to give you a little bit of context, stands for fast-moving consumer goods, and it's essentially all of those products that are on our supermarket shelves. So fast-moving, we buy a lot of them, consumer goods, things that we consume. So look, I really fell into my career. I was at university, and there were companies coming around and kind of touting summer internships. And I needed a job for summer, you know, pay my way at university. So I went along to a presentation, liked the sound of it, liked the idea of having a summer internship, and it all kind of spiralled from there. So I fell into it that way. They then offered me a full-time job once I graduated. And 15 years later, (laughs) I kind of 
came out of that. Yes, exactly. So very much fell into it. Look, I had an amazing career. So I worked in both New Zealand, Australia and the UK in this fast-moving consumer goods industry. And my job really became about what's called shopper. So understanding how we all behave as shoppers in the supermarket environment was obviously where I was focused. And then it was a case of using those insights to orchestrate us to buy more, really. So understanding shopper behavior, we would do things like we would analyze all of the data that's created every time, you know, we swipe things like our one card or our flybys, if you're in New Zealand, or just any kind of loyalty card or any transactional data, there was a lot of analytics that went on with that. We would pay people to go shopping with them. So we'd follow them around the supermarket with a clipboard in those days, sort of observing how people shopped. It was very voyeuristic, uh, but really, really interesting because human behavior is really, and shopper behavior is really interesting in terms of what we say we do and what we actually do are quite different. So we'd often need to sort of put people in a situation where we could just observe them. When I was working overseas, we had virtual supermarket labs where we'd bring people in and put special eye tracking glasses on them to see where their eyes went on virtual shelves, all sorts of things to really understand shopper behavior and then use that insight to go, okay, well, knowing what we know about behavior, how do we then get people to change it? The outcome being that we wanted people to buy more products, uh, pay more, buy things they've never bought before. So that was really my job. I loved my job for a long time and I got paid really well. I got the overseas travel and the international postings. Uh, it was really interesting. I was constantly learning. I was working with great, really smart people. But then about 10, it's probably 12, I've been saying 10 for a few years, about 12 years ago, my husband and I started on a personal journey towards living more sustainably. And so in my personal life very much came a, a journey of trying to be more mindful of how and what we were consuming and to consume less. And in my day-to-day -day work, I was obviously trying to get people to consume more. So those two things started. Mm, it's like contradicting <laughs> terms. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Really kind of started contradicting each other. And so I started going, well, how do I bring those two things together? And how do I use the 15 years experience and the insight and the knowledge that I have from my career to date as a force for good? And so the sort of standing joke is I used to be about understanding shopper behavior to get people to buy more. Now I'm about understanding human behavior to get people to consume less. And it's surprisingly really, really similar just with very different outcomes because it's that whole space, as you mentioned before, Philippa, of behaviour change. And it's just because we know we want to do something doesn't mean we do it. It all comes down to how do we actually focus on that space of behaviour change to create change. Were there any particular patterns of behaviour and was it just towards supermarket shopping? What did you glean from the information that has helped you create Mainstream Green? Mm. My work was predominantly in supermarkets or, you know, other retailers, especially in overseas markets, what we'd call mass merchandisers. So any of your big box stores like the warehouse in New Zealand would be an example or big W in Australia, any of those big ones. And health and beauty stores, there's obviously been quite a big growth in specialist health and beauty stores. So I definitely did some work in those as well. But really retail environments are all really, really similar. You'd see obvious trends coming through. Look, I think if I was really to distill it down to one trend, which really resonates across both, is that a lot of the choices that we make are on autopilot. 
If you look at a supermarket environment, there are tens of thousands of products in a supermarket, right? And we can't possibly process all of those. My job in, in that shopper space was to constantly make it easier for people to navigate and obviously ideally pick up our product. But it's the same in our day-to-day life, right? When it comes to being more conscious of how we're consuming, it's all about we've got to start by disrupting that autopilot of all of those tiny daily decisions we're making in terms of you know the products we're buying or the transport choices that we're making. A lot of our life and the choices we make happens on autopilot. Kind of has to, right? Otherwise our brains would explode with making too many. <laughs> operating in a conscious state on every little thing that we're making so so I guess that's a really big kind of theme of what I do is how do you first of all make people more conscious of the choices that they're making and then make it really easy for them to make what I you know consider from a planet point of view as a better choice I guess um, myself with my background in psychology as well the first step is helping people to realize that they are doing stuff automatically And actually to become more aware, it's a bit like our belief systems, you know, we troll through life on autopilot and suddenly realize, why the chuff am I doing this? And it's because somebody suggested it was a good idea or it's an entrenched belief that you've never questioned before. And I think it's an ideal time to get people to stop and think about their actions. And really one of the big things of the podcast is to recognize like yourself, it's a journey. You can't wake up the next morning and transform your whole life. You can have big ideas, but actually to make them a part of your daily life and shift the entire mindset and then become aware of when you're reaching out for something, you question yourself, do I need this? What am I going to do with it? How long is it going to serve me? How am I going to dispose of it sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. And when that lens of behavior change really kicks in as well, behavior change, if you really boil it down, is all about how do you overcome all the barriers to change, which is all about making it as easy as possible, right? So people have to be conscious, break that autopilot, but then also change has to be as easy as possible. In my previous life, I was trying to get people to buy a product. What's going to make buying that product as easy as possible? Is it really cheaper or is it more attractive or is it addressing a need? So when behavior change and that kind of mindful consumption space is the same. Like, yes, we've got to be conscious, but then also that change has to be really accessible because if a change, we might know that we need to make a change, but then we're like, but that's way too hard. I think that's one of the big obstacles that we have become so entrenched in a comfort zone where everything is done for us and we're not thinking about it, that challenging people to get out of their comfort zone and to think for themselves. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And any kind of level of change always has a level of discomfort. But a lot of the work that I do is also really focused on what are the benefits actually change feels good and how you know on my journey I very much found that every time I would make a change that suited me and my family you'd get that little rush of endorphins right you're like okay cool I'm making a change that's better for the planet that works for my family and I and that feels really good Mm. and that became really the motivation to then go on and make more change and I I talk a lot about gateway behaviors right I encourage people wherever you are on your journey just commit to making one small change no matter how small or insignificant that feels because then it feels easy then you get all those good feels you know back for making that change and then I find that becomes real you know a real motivator and a real driver yeah it's a snowball effect 
I found you and I did your 10-day challenge and I really loved it because it wasn't the normal things that you hear. You take your own keep cup with you, your water bottle and the takeaway stuff and the obviously the bags and things like that um, right across your life. And that's what I really loved about your challenge. It was a two-minute video for 10 days with different ideas that were so easy to implement in your life and sustain because that's the important part, isn't it? You can make those changes, but then you can forget it's any pattern of behavior that we have. That was awesome. Oh, good. I'm pleased you enjoyed it. Thank you for that feedback. And yeah, I think, you know, a big part of my mission, which is layered with behavior change very much so, is actually there's a perception of doing right, you know, being more sustainable or whatever language you use is that it's going to take you more time. Yeah. or more effort, mm-hmm. uh, or it's going to compromise, you know, the way you do business or the way you live your life. And and in my personal journey has completely dispelled that myth for me, you know. So we've been on this journey for about 12 years. Look, we've saved, uh, and I totally acknowledge that we're coming from a, a very privileged position to be able to make these choices, but, you know, we've saved a lot of money. We have counterintuitively saved a whole lot of time, and we live a life that's a lot more connected you know and so how that's kind of come about is we both my husband and I were in these big corporate careers where we were on this journey of just constantly striving for more more money you know more stuff to move into the bigger house and fill it with more furniture and we were kind of stuck on that treadmill and becoming more conscious of how what we're consuming really helped us reassess that and really kind of slow down our consumption when I say slow down our consumption I mean just be really conscious of the clothes we wear the food we eat the electricity we use the way we get around the waste we create all of those things being more mindful of that obviously helped us break up with that concept of more and has made our lifestyle has just become a lot simpler we've saved money we've saved time you know and like I said we just feel a lot more connected it gives it more meaning as well so how old were your children when you started the journey they weren't they weren't so we started yeah yeah we started the journey pre-children and so my children now are my eldest is just turned nine and then I have a six-year-old awesome yeah so you obviously embrace that side of things and nappies Mm, yes, yeah, absolutely. Did the reusable nappies, yeah, most of the time. I also don't believe in letting perfect be the enemy of good, as they say. So, yes, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with people who are kind of like, well, it's probably made it easier, the fact that our children were born into that lifestyle as opposed yeah. to having to change. But to be honest, I don't think I would have done anything any differently either. Like, as soon as my kids were kind of, and probably even beforehand, we're at the point of understanding. We've always had a lot of conversations with them to help them understand why we do things. You know, when they were really young, that was a lot easier. But now they're obviously at school and there's that comparison of actually the way we live our life is different. Yeah. Um, but a big part of the journey has been being really open and having the conversations to help them understand why and also realize that we can't control all of their choices. So by having conversations, we're also giving them the framework and the understanding that can help them make their own choices as well. Have they contributed at all in ideas or anything? Yeah, absolutely. So 
And it's really interesting to see how it comes to life as well. And my daughter now, my nine-year-old, is now starting to, I notice it, I like I might overhear it in her conversations with her friends or she'll mention things that she's done at school. You know, the lens that she throws over things and being more mindful of how she's consuming is quite a source of pride for her because she also recognises that it's different and she likes sharing with other people and suggesting ideas. A really good example is birthday parties. You know, the conversations that we have around planning birthday parties and the ideas that uh, my children will come up with for those and, you know, focusing on experiences over things and we make it quite an open conversation. And yeah, they're absolutely part of it. It's not always perfect and they, you know, make different choices all the time, but I feel like they can apply that lens in ways that really work for them. On the other side of the fence, is there anything that you think that has been expressed that they feel they're missing out on? Yeah, absolutely. There's still, I mean, you've got to remember that there's a trillion dollar marketing industry convincing us that we need more. Yeah. Right? (laughs) You know, I've been on this journey for 12 years and, you know, this is my lifestyle. This is my work. You know, I get it and I'm really entrenched in it, but I'm not a robot. You still kind of see some marketing or something and it's like, you know, I want that. And kids are no different. You know, I find it really interesting because we don't go to Kmart, you know, to buy things. If we ever are in that environment, I really notice my kids kind of going, you know, I'm surrounded by all this temptation and I want it, you know. So absolutely, they're very, you know, as we all are, we're very susceptible to marketing and temptation. But a big, you know, part of it for me, I talk about mindful consumption or conscious consumption. It's all about recognizing it. Mm-hmm. And if it's the kids see something they want, it's like, okay, let's think about that or let's sleep on it, you know, and then you remove yourself from that temptation and then you have a conversation about it. And nine times out of 10, they'll realize that actually they don't really need that or they don't really want that. Or if a month later they're still talking about it, then, you know, we know that it is a very real something that they really want. And then we'll obviously discuss that and figure out a way to do it. It's interesting how, you know, even if you are really aware, like myself, I mean, I've been on this journey probably for about 20 years. And you can get sucked into things. I mean, just between you and me, I was looking at my underwear drawer and thinking, okay, it needs to be replenished. And so I'll get something sustainable. Now, for me, one of my big things is to keep it within the New Zealand. I was researching all these different companies and I found one and then I was about to buy and I thought, hold on, that's abroad. Now start again. It's so easy to get sucked into things. So I think it's important to have those personal criteria that you're trying to reach. And like for me, one of it was to only buy in New Zealand where I can. And and that is the thing that stopped me from moving forward. Mm. Yeah. And I think you've hit on a couple of really cool things there. One is what is your why? And it's been a really big part of the journey for us, really tapping into your why. That helps kind of guide the choices and the changes that, you know, we all make. What I've figured out, my why is, you know, we really want to simplify our life so that we have more freedom of choice. Again, totally get it's coming from a position of privilege. I totally understand that. And everything is a choice, right? So if I want to buy something, the more I buy, the more money I need to be earning, therefore the more I need to be working. Right. You know, and one of the big whys for our family is time. You know, that's actually value for us. So to have more time, you know, a big journey that we did as a family when our kids were quite young was to go, actually, how much do we need to live on? 
Yeah. Yep. <laughs> you know, because we've been on this constant quest for more and sort of reverse engineered it to go, okay, well, if we make different choices in terms of how much we're buying, et cetera, then it gives us more freedom of choice. So, so with the kids, it's always a conversation around, yep, we can do this or we can have that, but that is a choice. We could live in a really big house, but we live in a really modest house because that means mum and dad aren't having to work 80 hours a week. And also I'm not having, or, or my husband or any of us, we're not having to spend as much time doing housework and as much, you know, so it's all about every choice we make. If it gets us a bit of a sticky choice, it's like, why are we making that choice? And how does that really kind of fuel our why, which is all about simplicity and time did a tiny home workshop at the beginning of January and it was one of the big topics that came up right at the beginning of the course that Everett spoke about conscious living and thinking deeply about what you're creating and how it's going to serve you and then you talk about the materials and the needs and things like that so you're adjusting it but you're using the conscious way of living and sussing out what's important to you before you actually start because you talked about people in these huge great big glass houses and their running costs and the time consumed in actually keeping them going and cleaning and things you know time is precious and you know the podcast is about waste don't waste your time put your energy into doing what's important to you ultimately I love that point because I think again everyone is different you know and the way we live our life is absolutely not for everyone but I think the most important thing is making conscious decisions and what those decisions are is going to be absolutely different and come to life in different ways but as long as you're going into it going actually this is my why and this is why I'm making the choices that I'm making yeah I love that yeah awesome So it was just a journey that you and your husband are on that actually helped you transition to creating. And did Mainstream Green, was that the idea to begin with or was it something that evolved from your change in lifestyle? Yeah, so it's constantly evolving. Um, Our sustainability journey started very much from a personal well-being point of view. So my husband started getting pretty mild dermatitis on his ring finger. Uh, that was the finger that changed everything, which seems ridiculous, right? But that was just the trigger. So he started getting dermatitis, went to the doctor, got steroid cream, cleared up really quickly, but kept coming back. So we were treating the, the symptoms and not the cause. Something that I'd heard or read at some point was all about actually through the different products that we're using, we're putting hundreds of different synthetic chemicals on our skin every day. Something kind of made me go, oh, maybe that's, you know, maybe there's something in that. So our first change was changing our hand soap. So changing from a supermarket brand hand soap where we couldn't really navigate the ingredients on the back, had no idea what they were. It was just a real cocktail of kind of different ingredients to going, actually, let's try something where we understand the ingredients and it's a bit simpler from that point of view. And that seemed to help. And then it literally became this journey of one small change at a time starting with the products that we were using and putting on our skin, then moving through to other products that we were using, like our cleaning products, anything that was kind of going into the air around us or on the surfaces, we were preparing food on, all those kinds of things that literally one step at a time moved through all of those. Then we started looking at the food we were eating. Then somewhere along the line, I realized that, well, this is better for our own well-being, which was purely our motivation to begin with, but yep. it's also better from an environmental point of view, right? Because we're, we're putting a lot less of these unknown and, and not fully understood 
ingredients back out into the environment. You know, they're not getting flushed down our toilets or down our shower drains or anything like that. And that felt good. And also because we were really starting to question, you know, my job had been to convince people that they needed a different beauty product for every limb and appendage on their body and and a different cleaning product for every surface and room in the house. We started going, actually, no, we don't. Let's, you know, how do we simplify? And because we were simplifying the amount of different products we were using, we were creating less waste. That felt really good. So then I started looking in the rubbish bin going, well, what else is in the rubbish bin that we could be reducing? And then that kind of organically led on to going, well, what about we're simplifying all the products we're using? What about all the other stuff in our life? So the clothes and the furniture and the kids' toys and all of that other stuff, can we simplify that? And started reading up a lot on minimalism and living with less. And it really just kind of organically moved through various stages to the point that, you know, we now live with significantly less stuff than we had pre-kids. You know, we've got rid of tens of thousands of items that we previously would have filled our house with. We downsized our house. We have significantly reduced the amount of synthetic chemicals we use in our home and on ourselves every day. And as a family of four, we now create the equivalent of just one wheelie bit of rubbish a year. But it really was just, you know, as they say, a journey of lots and lots of just really small changes to the point that life's done a 180, but it hasn't felt like a big deal. How long has Mainstream Green been going? So Mainstream Green has been going since 2014 was when I first created it. And it was created with a very good friend of mine. She's always been this way. I obviously have not. As I sort of started on my own personal journey, I found that we were talking a lot more about things like cloth nappies, about things like, you know, waste reduction. And also we found that a lot of our friends, if we engaged them in the right way or they saw us doing something, they'd want to start talking about it. And so we found that if we engaged people in the conversation the right way, it was a real really strong catalyst for change. Mm-hmm. So Mainstream Green was started on the basis of the power of conversation, really. And we applied for some local council funding from their Waste Reduction Fund to run some workshops. And that's where it all started. And it's just spiraled from there. So the real premise of it is all about how do you engage people in a way that makes sustainability feel really easy, feel really normal and feel really good. And so there's three prongs to my business. One is public facing stuff, which is things like I had a book come out last year. I do a lot of public facing events. I create a lot of online content and online learning, working with businesses. So I do a lot of public speaking with businesses to get them excited about uh, about sustainability and give them a toolbox, you know, of how to change their behavior. And then I do consulting work with councils in the space of behavior change as well. Wow. So your book, uh, Living Likely, Yes. Had you collected all the information, the changes that you created over time, or did you have to go back and think about it to create it? So I've been doing events for a long time where there's kind of three parts to my speaking events, which is also very much echoed in in my book as well. It starts with my story. So because I think it's really helpful for people to understand, one, that I haven't always been this way. You know, I was the, the ultimate consumer and driving ultimate consumption. So I think that's quite helpful for people to understand what it's actually done for our lifestyle. It hasn't compromised our lifestyle in any way. It's really enhanced it. And what that's meant for myself, you know, and the rest of my family as well. So I spend a lot of time talking about that story. I also spend a lot of time talking about behavior change because it's all well and good for people to read it and go, oh, yeah, cool. I understand your story and I've got lots of tips and tricks. 
but yeah. then it can just sit as a book, you know, or a, an idea just gathering dust and then you just feel guilty about the fact that you're not changing anything. <laughs> so I spend a lot of time going, actually, how as humans, how do we make it really, really easy to change our behavior and lots of tools around that? And then a lot of kind of tips and tricks of things that I've done in my speaking events, bring it to life in a way. So the book's called Living Lightly, The Busy Person's Guide to Mindful Consumption. Because what I've found is the biggest barrier often that comes up for people is I'd love to do more, but I just don't have time. Yeah. So the tips and tricks that I share are things that work for me and my family, but are things that very much align with my why of I'm not, time's really important. So to make a more sustainable change, it has to take the same amount of time or less. And so I very much have a really big kind of time lens on it. And if I look at the journey that we've had, we have, we've freed up a significant amount of time. You have to think a little bit differently and you have to be, you know, go through that slight layer of discomfort as you talked about as you create a change but ultimately we've ended up saving a heap of time so all of the tips and tricks are kind of changes or actions that I have done over the years and refined in a way that work for my family and me and don't take a whole lot more time or effort or lead to a whole lot of compromise. Are there any particular patterns of behavior within families and or businesses that you have identified? One big one is that I feel like we've been sold a little bit of a dummy when it comes to the concept of convenience. Yep. Which you mentioned before. So I'll I'll give you an example, which is a, a story that I often tell and is in my book as well, which is I was halfway through making a pie at home one time and I used to buy those really convenient pre-frozen sheets of pastry where people coming over and I was halfway through making a pie and I'm like I've run out okay well I can't back out now it's all good I'll just shoot to the supermarket and buy some more I live in Cambridge it's a small town it's only kind of a four minute drive each way to the supermarket it feels really easy and it feels really convenient But then obviously doing what I do and knowing what I know, I'm like, well, hold on a minute. How long will it actually take me to make it? I'm not somebody who loves spending lots of time in the kitchen making things. It's not my natural inclination. But I went, could it really be that hard? So I kind of Googled an easy, simple, quick pastry recipe and went, actually, it doesn't look that hard. How can anything with that much butter in it taste bad? (laughs) So, (laughs) So I gave it a whirl and I made it. And it took me 16 minutes to make a double batch of pastry, right? And I could throw half of it in the freezer for another time. And it was delicious. And then what I did, because I'm so driven to kind of dispel these myths of convenience, is that I hopped in my car and I drove to the supermarket and I pretended to buy pastry. And I drove home and I timed myself, right? I literally spent a year of doing these kinds of experiences. And it's only a four-minute drive each way to the supermarket, but it took me 24 minutes. I live in a small town, so you're always going to see somebody you know. So you've got to kind of get out of you know, get out of your house clothes. If you've got kids, you've got to get them in the car, you've got to find a park, you've got to make your way all the way through the store to find the pastry, you've got to buy eight other things that you didn't realize you needed, and then wonder how you've just spent $120 when you went in for one thing, you know, yeah. find your yeah. car, drive home, unpack. You know, it feels like the quickest and easiest thing to do. But I've now learned that actually the quickest, easiest, most convenient thing to do is to not leave my house you know, is to make do with the things that I have. 
Whereas we just feel like it's so convenient to pop to the supermarket and buy stuff. It's so convenient to shoot to the shopping mall and buy stuff. It's so, you know, it feels really convenient. But the reality is, is that we're just spending more of our lives shopping for things that we potentially don't need, more of our time looking after these big houses and all of this stuff that we're filling them with. Yeah, I think that's been a really big thing for me is really demystifying that concept of convenience because I think, like I said, there's a trillion dollar marketing industry selling us the promise of convenience, <laughs> you know, the promise One of, of the ones, the convenience things that really gets my goat is grated cheese. Oh, yeah. I live on my own, but I will buy a kilo of cheese and I will chop it up into three pieces and put two in the freezer and I will grate it myself. And my daughter, she's got two children and she gets out this packet of grated cheese and I just have to zip my mouth. Well, I don't always. And years ago, I can remember when it first came out as a thing and I just thought, how hard is it to get the grater out and actually do it? I've never actually looked into how much more expensive it is, but I'm no doubt it is. And you've got all that packaging and stuff as well. Yeah, quite Mm. extraordinary. So what about businesses? Is there a certain pattern or something? I mean, obviously, it's very diverse market. Again, I think it really comes down to convenience and it would depend on the nature of the business. But you look at... There's just been this real shift to disposability, you know, so single-use things. Like if you look at the medical profession, you know, back in the day when my mum was nursing, everything was reusable and you'd, you know, sterilise it. Well, cafes is a great example, you know, everything's served in disposable packaging and things like that. Or businesses, if you go into an office-based environment and just everything gets printed and, you know, there's not a lot of consciousness around resources that are being used, I guess that's the big thing is there's just often not a lot of consciousness around, is there another way of doing this where we can respect or think differently um, around how resources are being used? so that we can use less of them essentially Mm. so when I first started mainstream green it was very much because my journey had been from a household lifestyle point of view but then obviously I had a 15 years of corporate experience and I started taking my content and and working with businesses more and I went how do I change my speaking or my content to resonate more with businesses it's a different kind of conversation isn't it well it is but it's still human at the end of the it's day. It's still human. Exactly. Yeah. Nailed it. You know, an organization is a bunch of humans, right? Mm-hmm. To me, it's all about how do you flick that switch to make people more conscious of how and what they're consuming? And if they flick that switch, then the switch is flicked wherever they go, regardless of whether it's in their workplace or in their home or in if they've got kids at school and the school community. To me, it's all about just having a mindset and you take that mindset with you wherever you go. So yeah, I totally changed my tune on that. When I don't need to change it. Absolutely. If I'm speaking to an organization, I'll weave in organizational examples, but ultimately the approach is still the same. It's still about how do we become more conscious and change our behavior as humans? And that is completely relevant, whether it's in the home or in the workplace. At the heart of it, it's about caring. And going back to the beginning of our conversation, it's really about what's in it for me. And it's caring and seeing what you get out of something and how much more you can contribute to the planet gives you that motivation to continue. And once you're on it, 
you can't go back you can't unknow what you now know yeah I love that because it feels good so I had a a friend of mine who you know to be fair is not on the sustainability journey and she was telling me the story she's like oh Nick you're rubbing off on me I went to the sushi shop the other day and I took my own container with me and I'm like oh that's really really cool and I said and how did it feel and she's like I was so proud I felt really great and I said did you expect that and she said no and she said, but that will keep me doing it. You just get this yep. rush of endorphins. It feels inherently most people know that the way we are living is beyond the means of the planet, but they feel yep. like it's too hard or too time consuming or too much of a compromise to change their behavior. But, you know, I believe intrinsically most of us believe that. So then if you do start taking action, it feels really good. You do, you get rewarded. And I think one of the big things is it's like, what difference am I going to make? I'm only one person. The problem is, out there and I'm not going to influence it in any way but actually it all has an exponential effect and as you say you know throughout your journey the expansion of your business and the conversations you've had will have affected so many more people than you can imagine. The ripple effect of change is very very real and it's essentially why I do what I do. I remember having a conversation with somebody who before the plastic bag situation changed at supermarkets and they were like, you know, I I diligently take my reusable shopping bags along to the supermarket and then I look around, there might be one other person there with reusable bags and everybody else, it's not even on their radar and I find that really, really disillusioning. And I'm like, but what you need to remember is that there might be five people in the supermarket who see you with your reusable bags and go, oh, yeah, I've got those at home. I should start bringing them. Mm-hmm. And maybe two of those people next time will bring their reusable bags. And then five people will see each of them and go, oh, maybe I could do that. And that's, you know, we haven't always lived the way we live now in a highly disposable, consumptive-based society. There's been a small gradual change over time because of social norms, because of that ripple effect of change. And, you know, we just need to kick that in reverse and start rippling out and using social norms and the ripple effect of change the other way. So has there been a book and or a person that has influenced you at all? Mm. As with most things in life, it's just been this incredible patchwork of books, of podcasts, of movies, of conversations, of people, of experiences that I feel is constantly shaping what I do so I don't think I'd ever boil it down to one thing in particular but if I really kind of trace it back to what kicked off this for me I think it was Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth I think came out in 2006 yeah and then funnily enough in 2007 I was living in the UK and I went to the Live Earth concerts that Al Gore organized around that whole concept so I think that was what kind of flicked a bit of a switch for me I think one of the more influential books recently was probably Project Drawdown it's got a wonderful full title that I can't quite remember so that's by Paul Hawken but it's basically like have you read that no there's a lot of sustainability and climate experts that contribute it to the book But the book is called Drawdown, the most comprehensive plan ever proposed to reverse global warming. And what I love about it is the essence of the book is essentially we know everything we need to know and we have all of the tools that we need to have to change. 
to reverse global warming being the essence of it. This is what it looks like. So it might be, okay, transport, this is what we need to do for transport. If we moved so much to EVs, so much public transport. So it's basically like, instead of being a focus on the problem, (laughs) it's fundamentally a focus on the solution. I think there's a lot of things like that in life. It's like this is a solution and it helps people see because I think some people are scared of letting go of thinking that there will be a hole or something missing in their lives if they change the patterns of their life. So it actually helps create that motivation to see it is a better world. I mean, my icons are um, Jane Goodall, Sylvia Earle and David Attenborough, you know, and you think of the changes that those three have seen on the land and the air and with the wildlife, it's phenomenal, but they still are humble and hopeful. Yeah, because they can see it. They know what's wrong. And, you know, they have contributed massively to helping us understand things. We just need to get off our chuff and do shit, eh? (laughs) Yep, 100%. And I think you're right. My tagline with Mainstream Green is making sustainability easy, normal and feel good. You know, because how do you push a positive spin on stuff, right? Because, and, and that lens of hope over things and focus on the fact that doing what we need to do, it's important, but it also, it's good. It feels good, you know, being in a state of hope instead of a state of despair. Absolutely. To me, the health of the planet is a reflection of people's health. And you can see there's a real disparity there. One helps the other, basically. So yeah, is there a quote or something that inspires you? I think the one that I keep coming back to is, if not now, then when? Yeah, if not, funny, yeah, I've got that up on the wall as well. <laughs> Brilliant, because, yeah, I think it's really easy to just go, somebody else will sort this out. Yep, you know, or I'll, I'll do just... it tomorrow, and tomorrow turns into a week, a month, or a year, or something. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly, and, you know, and I think that dovetails into that, you know, the saying, so is don't let perfect be the enemy of good. A lot of businesses I work with, oh, yeah, we'll get onto this when we've got budget. Well, 10-year strategic plan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, whereas... So much, and this is true with mainstream green as my social enterprise, but also in the day-to-day changes I make in life. You've just got to start and it's never going to be perfect, but you just learn from doing. Yeah, I did that with this podcast. I had no idea what I was doing, but I just put it out there and it's grown. And the opportunities and meeting delicious people like yourself, it's all learning and it helps other people. So it has that ripple effect, hopefully, as well. Well done. Yeah, totally respect what you're doing. It's awesome. So that's all a very positive thing. But what do you do when you're in a funk? There's three words that I guess are a mantra for one of a better term, which is pause, breathe and move. So mm-hmm. I think I'm naturally a very type A personality. So it's quite easy for me just to do things at high speed without really being conscious or thinking. So I think that pause is really, really important. If I'm in a funk or going too fast or too overwhelming, just that conscious moment. Breathing. Conscious you know. breathing. It's very different from everyday breathing. <laughs> everyday breathing, yeah. I just do it. But autopilot, right? Breaking yeah. out of that autopilot of breathing to really connect to that breath and then move. Depends on where I am. Ideally, the first thing I do in the morning is walk outside and just really connect to the day. If it's you know not freezing cold, you know, put my feet on the earth and look up. It's interesting because my guest um, last week was Kay from Yoga Fish. And your pause and breathe and move very much lines up with what she did. She dared herself 
to do an ocean swim and now she does it um, every day of the year and she trained as a, a yoga teacher and it's all about the movement and she's combined the two and she had a panic attack in the middle of the ocean and she did that very thing that pausing and the breathing and how important it is and just going with the flow of it and it brings you back down to earth amazing isn't it yeah, yeah, yeah. amazing ultimately it is simple and we overcomplicate things yep I think that's a fair summary <laughs> I was your fairy godmother and you're allowed to change one thing in the world what would it be and why such a big question isn't it mm. and mm, I haven't really articulated it into a perfectly formed sentence but to me it's something about connection I feel like we've got to where we've got to due to a lack of connection and that connection is with people is with planet a lot of the consumptive model that we're living in and the disposable model that we're living in and the way we're living, I think, has become really disconnected. And I think that's been something that's really been such a, a beautiful outcome of the journey that I've been on with my family is we do just feel more connected to people and planet. And yeah, it's been really valuable and has really helped change our mindset and our approach. It's been a great realisation for us and I think it could be really cool if more people could feel like that. It goes right back to being autopilot and the connection is really initially with ourselves and finding what's important for ourselves and that expands and so it's expanded within your own family and then actually recognizing that the planet is our family and she's our home and everybody on it is part of our family and everything's interconnected and so by changing ourselves as opposed to pointing the finger out there for other people to change if we do it ourselves it does have that exponential effect very articulately <laughs> gosh goodness knows where that one came from but hey <laughs> You nailed it. Just what you said. <laughs> Fantastic. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Nick. It's been an absolute pleasure and a delight. And I must get a copy of that book of yours. Amazing. Thanks so much for having me, Philippa. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. I'd highly recommend you take up Nick's 10-day challenge to inspire you on your own journey and get a copy of her book, Living Lightly, The Busy Person's Guide to Mindful Consumption, filled with grounded tips and real-life stories to keep you motivated and realise you too can do it. You can also take part in the Global Plastic Free July Challenge. There's a link in the show notes. I'm continuing the theme of intentional changes and starting afresh in next week's episode as us Kiwis celebrate Matariki, the Māori New Year. I'll be talking to Trav Bell, known as the Bucket List Guy, who's on a mission to help 10 million people lead purposely fulfilled, regret-free lives. And just so you don't suffer from FOMO, ensure you follow or subscribe to the podcast on your preferred platform, be it Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Samsung Podcasts, or my YouTube channel, so you don't miss out on future episodes. And don't forget to get in touch if you have a subject or guest you'd like me to consider. My email is info at philiparos.com. So until next week, dig deep, open your mind to a world of possibilities, live life with a generous heart and take steps to minimise waste and maximise your own potential. Mm-hmm.